Hi, this is Rabbi Dovi Ben Shushan from Congregation Magen Abraham, thanking you in advance for listening to the following Shi'ur Torah. It's nothing less than a badge of honor to be able to walk out of Simchat Torah and we're sounding like this, with no voice. And it's amazing how Rabbi Hutner used to say that when a person comes out of Pesach, and you take one look at the Haggadah, and you'll see if that Haggadah has stains of wine, crumbs going down the insides of the pages, at least you know that Haggadah was used. You walk out of Kippur, and you look at the Kippur Machzor, and at least if the pages are somewhat soiled with teardrops, you know that that Haggadah, or in this case, that Machzor of Kippur, was used. When we come out of Simchat Torah and we sound hoarse and the way we sound now, it's very clear that at least Baruch Hashem, the voices were used for Simchat Torah and we gave the Torah everything we got. And we begin with the amazing beginning of the Torah, Bereshit Bara Elohim. And right there, on the onset and the get-go of Torah, the Torah tells us an incredible message. Bereshi bara Elohim. What are the sofet tevot for the first three words of Torah? Bereshit, the last letter in the word Bereshit is Taf. Bara, the last letter is Aleph. Elohim, the last letter is Mem, spelling out the word Emet. This is the beginning of our path, the starting of Torah for this year. We are now beginning the truth. We're starting our quest on the road to Emet. And it's amazing, you know, the rabbis want to know if the Torah right away wanted to tell you that the essence of Torah is all about emet, and this is the path of truth. How come the Torah came to hint the word emet on the sofe tevot of the first three letters, of the first three words? Why did Torah not simply say and hint the emet on the rashe tevot of the first three words of Torah? Now you might ask, well, what do you mean? If that's the case, then the Torah would have to start with different letters. The first would be an Aleph, and then the second word would be a Mem, and the third word would somehow or other work with the Taf. But at the end of the day, that's not difficult. Because the genius and the brilliance that just went into that first word, Bereshit, already shows you that Hashem could have started the Torah any way He wanted. The rabbis tell us that the word Bereshit, the word itself, already hints to all 613 mitzvot. Matter of fact, there's a famous story where the Vilna Gaon was known to be able to show how from the word Bereshit, you have hinted all 613 mitzvot. And one time, uh, he was by a Pidyon Haben, and one of his Talmidim walked up to the great Gaon, and he said, Rebbe, you taught us that in the first word, Bereshit, you have hinted 613 mitzvot. So, where do you have the mitzvah of Pidyon Haben? So the Gaon says, ah, he says, that's easy. Bereshit, Bet, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yud, Tav. He says, the word itself, Bereshit, it stands for Ben Rishon, Achre. Shloshim Yom Tifdeh Bereshit. Genius. That's it, ladies. You got your money's worth for this week. Is that Hashem? I'll see you next. <laughs> That's genius. And the Gaon was able to show all 613 mitzvot just in the first word of Bereshit. So you see clearly. <clears throat> that Hashem could have started the Torah any way He wanted. And if Hashem wanted to hint to us 
the concept of emet, right at the get-go, right at the beginning of Torah. He could have started it, not with the sofetevot, not that it should be the last letter of the first three words. It could have been the first letter of the first three words of Torah. Why make them the last three? Why make them the last letters of the first three words? Why sofetevot? Why not rashetevot? And the answer that the rabbis tell us is an incredible message. And that is, in the beginning, in the start of things, generally people don't see the emet right away. But at the end, oh, at the end, the truth always comes out. And that's why dafka, when Hashem came to teach us that the Torah is the beginning of our cycle, our road, our quest to truth. In the beginning, you might not see emet right away. But in the sofetevot, at the end, basof, the emet will always come out. The emet will always shine true. And this is an incredible lesson. Matter of fact, this is such a powerful lesson that this is a life lesson. And it's one of the first lessons that Torah is teaching us. Nobody can guarantee that their life is on a path of truth unless it's a life of Torah and mitzvot. The Torah itself is the guarantee, is the insurance plan to guarantee a Jew that when we're living a life of Torah, we are living a life of truth. And at the end, when life basof, a person will be able to look back and they'll be able to see the incredible accomplishments, the fulfillment, and they'll be able to justify their incredible life and living because at the end, the truth is always very clear. But sometimes, when people think that they're going to take the shortcuts, they think they're going to shortcut the Torah. They think they know better than the Torah. And they tell you, Rabbi, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to go out. I'm going to conquer. And suddenly they, God forbid, walk away from Torah. And they walk away from that connection to truth. That's the moment that they start living a life that one day, God forbid, they may look back and say, was I living truth? Or maybe my life, I was living a lie. Says Torah, don't chance it. You have only one life to live. The only guarantee that you're on the path of truth is a life that's connected to Torah. And therefore, right there, on the first three words of the Torah, Bereshit bara Elohim, right away, Sofet Tevot spells out, Emet. Grab this path. Go down this road. And you'll see in the end, the truth will always shine through. The truth will always prevail. This is the only guarantee to be connected to truth. Today, living a life in America, these words are very warming. Because today, the tests that we go up against and the winds of Galu that try to sway us away from Hashem and His Torah. But the person that has a certain perseverance that's able to keep connected to Torah, that they have a home that's based on Torah and mitzvot, that they have a husband that they push out to Torah shiurim, that their kids are going to real Torah yeshivot. Those people find that no matter how much at times we're tested and we sway, the Torah always brings us back to the truth. And we're always brought back to the path. And believe me when I tell you, Hashem wanted to give us this message right at the beginning of Torah, right at the get-go. Because today more than ever, there have been so many Jews that thought that they knew better. They thought they're going to beat the system. They thought that they'll be able to figure out how a life could be run without Torah, without mitzvot. And then you take a look today. You take a look, lo'aleinu. You take a look at the statistics today in America and how intermarriage 
is at 62%. Yeah, there were many Jews that thought that they knew better. Many Jews that said, no, no, not me, Rabbi. I'm going to be okay. I can go out and make a life of the way I want to live, and it won't be a Torah life, and you'll see I'll be successful. And then, lo aleinu. Sure enough, Yitzhar Hara shows up and starts testing them an inch at a time. And over life, they look back and how many we've lost. What a scary statistic. Recently, I was reading that today in the United States, there is the same amount of Jews that they were 20 years ago. And the number did not change. It's amazing. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Should be much more. I mean, we, we're, a, we're a minivan nation, right? We don't have uh, 1.2 kids with a dog. That's, that's not the Jewish people. We have large families. We're blessed with so many children. That number from 15 years ago should have doubled and quadrupled. How is it possible that we're still at that same 15 million number of 20 years ago? And the answer is, and it hurts and it pains to say, that as many kids as we have, and as many new generation and children we have, as many as we've added, was as many as we've lost. We've lost so many people who thought they can live a life without Torah. That they thought they had a better system. That they thought that they were smarter than the Torah. They were smarter than the rabbis. And they thought they can go out and live a dream that was based on lies, was based on falsehood. But at the time, they couldn't see it straight because they didn't have the light of Torah in their life. They just couldn't see clear. And they got caught up in the web of Galut and they became a statistic. And they were lost to the Jewish people because there was nothing bringing them back to the truth. Says the Torah, Klal Yisrael, you're starting the Torah again, right at the beginning, the first three words. Hashem says, I want to send you a message. Bereshit bara Elohim. So tevot emet. This is the only guarantee to live a life of truth. And even when you sway, this is going to be that magnificent force running through your veins that will always bring you back to the road of truth. It will always keep you close to Klal Yisrael. This is the guarantee. It's amazing. Many years ago, in the time of the First World War, the Russian army was notorious for coming into cities and they would start just grabbing up young men, boys, drafting them into the army against their will, against their family's will. And for the Jewish people in Russia at that time, this was a nightmare. You see, because it's one thing to be drafted to the Russian army. That already was a death sentence. But to be drafted to the Russian army as a Jew, that was a guaranteed religious death sentence. Because the Russians... Once they knew they had their hands on a Jew, they would go out of their way to make sure. They would take his tefillin away. They would take the sidor away. There's no religion in the Russian army. And because of that, when they used to come to the Jewish towns, the parents would shake and shiver that their children should not be taken, drafted away, maybe never to see them again, not even to live a life as a Jew. One particular town they say over in the time of World War I, the Russians came and they slated a certain number of Jewish kids and some not Jewish kids that were going to be taken to the Russian army. One of these boys was the son of a very wealthy Jewish butcher. Now the butcher was a man of means and he used his influence and his wealth and he bribed one of the Russian officials that his son, who was slated for the draft, should be taken out of the draft. And he succeeded. And he got his son out of the draft. But sure enough, there's a quota. There's a number that has to be filled. So when he took his son out of the draft, automatically the draft fell on one more boy. 
And of course, that boy that it fell on was an orphan, a yatom, a Jewish boy who had no father, had no one to fight for him, had no one to defend him. And the draft came, and the people came to the butcher crying and screaming, look what you did. Yes, I understand. And no one in the world would ever question any parent to do whatever they can for their child. And no one probably would do any different. But they said, you're a man of means. The way you were able to pull your son out, put up a few dollars, save this orphan kid, get him out of the army, maybe they'll draft the goy. He didn't want to hear of it. No, my son's out. That's all that mattered to him. He didn't want to hear about nothing else. And the people were begging him, haram, this kid's a yatom. He doesn't have a father to fight for him. He doesn't have parents to protect him. He didn't want to hear from nothing. And the Russians came. And sure enough, they took all the boys, including this orphan. They took him off to the Russian army, never to be seen again. Many of them, never to be seen again. This story made its way back to the city of Radin, where the Hafez Chaim lived. And when they told the Hafez Chaim what happened, his answer to this story was one word. He simply said, wait. That's it. Wait. That's it. But they said, but Rebbe, he said, ah, don't say a word. Wait. That's it. A few years later, about six, seven years later, there was a very well-known and a very horrific virus, deadly virus, that was going around Europe at that time. The name of the virus was the cholera virus. And it was, it was killing people by the thousands. And they had no vaccine. And they had no antidote. And anyone who caught and it was incredible, it was very infectious, this virus. And people who got it and were infected, they passed away only weeks later. The son of the butcher came down with cholera as the first one in the town. And the people went into a panic. It's one thing to hear about this virus from far away, but when you find out that someone in your own town has it, and it's so infectious, immediately everyone avoided the butcher, his son. The butcher had to close his store. No one would touch his meat because from his home the virus came. And as well, his son, the doctors wouldn't even come to treat. They were too scared that they get infected with the cholera virus. After only two weeks, this poor boy, the butcher's son, passed away. And the Hevra Kadisha, the burial society, they wouldn't come and bury him. They were scared for their lives. They were scared. What's that? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I said to myself, maybe, I said, yeah, I said to myself, maybe I shouldn't say this story this week until they get a hand on this Ebola thing. No, but nonetheless, they, they didn't want it. They didn't want to handle the boy's body. They were so scared to get infected by this horrible virus. Turns out, Hebra Kadisha didn't bury the boy. And nobody showed up to the funeral either. They were too scared to get too close. This butcher, who now loses his entire business and his wealth, he goes walking through the streets holding his son alone and he brings him out and he buried his son with his own hands. Ay, ay, ay. Hafez Chaim used to say, you cannot beat Hashem's system. Not that we're judging the butcher. That's not the point of this story, God forbid. Although there was a ta'ana that he should have tried to help that yatom, that orphan boy, that the, the draft was thrown onto. But that's not the point. There are no shortcuts. You can't beat the system. You can't beat the system of God, and you cannot beat the truth. And this is the opening, but yet shaking words of the Torah as we start a new round of Torah for this year. Bereshit bara Elohim. Sofetevot, tough. Aleph, Mem, Emet. This is the Emet that was placed in the world. And the only guarantee that you're on the path of truth and that you're living the life of truth is by living a life of Torah. There is no other way. 
I'd like to share with you an incredible thought. And those of you who are good at math, maybe you can give me a hand with this. You know, the Benish High writes, and this is, I tell you, I think about this, this is just a, an incredible phenomenon, just to think about this. Says the Benish Chai, if you start with the number two, and you go every three numbers, you'll find that no matter how many steps you'll go until infinity, it'll always come back to the number nine. This is the world of gematria. The world of gematria is the world of numerical significance, numerical value of letters and numbers. So let's try this for a moment. If we start with the number two and we go three steps, so that's two, three, and four. Two and three is five, plus four is nine. Okay. Five, six, and seven. Five and six, that's 11, plus seven is 18. One and eight, nine. So let's take a look one more, we'll try this one more step. We're up to, I believe, five, six, and seven. Eight, nine, and 10. Well, eight, nine, eight, nine is 17, plus 10 is 27. Seven and two, nine, again. And no matter how many steps of three numbers, one starting from two will always come back to the number nine, till infinity. And you can check this up with calculators. It's an incredible concept. But wait, what happens if you start with the number one? Starting with the number one, if you go three steps, you'll find a similar phenomenon. That when you start with number one, three steps until infinity, it'll always come back to the number six. Let's try that. You got one, two, and three. Well, that's a no-brainer. One and two is three, and three is six. Okay, four, five, and six. Four and five is nine, and six is 15. One and five is six. Seven, eight, and nine. Seven and eight is 15, and nine is 24. Four and two, six. Brilliant. And this is true all the way until infinity. So if you start with the number one going three steps, it always comes back to six. If you start with the number two and you go three steps, it always comes back to nine. So now you're going to ask me the million dollar question, Rabbi. So what's the significance of the number six and what's the significance of the number nine? I'd like to tell you. Take the word emet. Emet in the world of gematria, Aleph is one. Mem is 40. Taf is 400. That means that emet is 441. 441. Four and four is eight plus one, nine. The number nine is the symbol of emet. How about the word sheker, falsehood? Well, sheen is 300. Kuf is 100. Resh is 200. Altogether, 600. 6 plus 0 plus 0 equals 6. The number 6 stands for Sheker. The number 9 stands for Emet. The number 6 stands for Sheker. And that's why the Torah could not start with an Aleph. Because when you begin with the number 1, and you go three steps till infinity, it always comes back to six, and that is sheker. That's why the Torah started with a bet. In order that when you start from the number two and you go three steps, it always comes back to nine, which is the symbol of emet, because this is a Torah of emet. This is a path of emet, and you can go with this Torah till infinity and till the end of your lives, and it'll always bring you back to the emet. To the number nine. And that's why the shul is on East Ninth. No, that's a, that's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. Well, maybe it's not a joke. Because we're East Ninth between T and U. That's the emet between Torah and Mitzvot. You like that? I mean, this is, yeah, we're working on this. And that's why, by the way, Brooklyn does not have an East Sixth. 
There's no such thing because Sheker doesn't exist. You understand? Sheker is falsehood. And six stands for falsehood, right? That's why Brooklyn doesn't have an E6. Because it doesn't, Shaker doesn't, Shaker doesn't exist. Yeah? Well, maybe it's hidden somewhere. Because most of us only know Ocean Parkway. <laughs> Nonetheless, coming back to the point. But this is the point why Torah had to start with the letter Bet. It starts with the two. Because when you start with the two, taking three steps anywhere in life, it'll always come back to the Emet to show you that Torah is about Emet. By the way, I want to tell you that it's not just the Torah that starts with the bed. If you open up any Gemara in Shas, any of the tractates of Gemara, it always starts with Daf Bet. It never begins with Daf Aleph. Because to start with the one could lead you to the sixth Sheker. This is a Torah Emet Natan Lanu. This is a Torah Emet, and therefore, to demonstrate that from the get-go, we start the Torah with a bet, we start the Gemara with a bet, we always begin with the path of truth to remind you that this is the way of truth. And no matter how far out life you go, Sofet Tevot will always be Emet. The end, it'll always bring you back to the truth. The only guarantee in life that we're living a life of truth and not, God forbid, that we're living a life of lies, is a life that has in it a Torah connection. With this in mind, I just thought it was comical years ago. When I was in yeshiva in Israel, I actually had a very good friend, an Israeli guy, because I went to an Israeli yeshiva. And he told me, he said to me, he says, you know, I, 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 visited, I visited my family in Brooklyn, and he says, before I went, I studied many, many different books. Israelis are very interesting when it comes to going to new places, not like Americans. When an American goes to a new place on tour, they figure, all right, when I get there, I'll speak to the concierge in the hotel and find out what's there to do. Israelis are not like that. They really do background and research and read books so that when they get there, they know exactly what to do. So he told me he read books. And he read about New York City, and he read about the buildings, and he, this guy knew more than I did. I grew up here. He hasn't seen the place yet in his life. He knew who built what buildings, and amazing, with bridges. But he tells me a cute story. He says that, um, he says when he came to Brooklyn, so after spending a few days with his family, he decided he's going to go to Manhattan, to New York City which was something he always wanted to see. He says he got onto the platform and he already knew from his research from Israel that these are the trains that take you to New York City. I'm amazed with these guys, I'm telling you. When I went to Israel, it took me years just to learn the Egged system from yeshiva to town and back. They knew already how to get to the, to, to, you know, in those days at Twin Towers, but into the Empire State Building, he knew before he landed, amazing. So he told me, he says he went to the train station. He knew about the D, he knew about the F, he knew about, wow. So he tells me, I got to the train station. I got up, he tells me he gets on the platform and he's about to get onto the train. He says he was so sure of himself because he did so much research. He was so in the know and so positive, he didn't bother asking anybody. He just got onto the D train, that was it. He's sitting there. He gets on by King's Highway. The next stop takes him over to Avenue U. And then to, I think it was Neck Road. And I said to him, wait one second, that means you're going the wrong direction. He says, yeah, but at the time I had no clue. He said, I was so sure of myself because I did my research. I knew the D takes you to Manhattan. That's it. So he says, I was sitting there and I was looking at the stops, he tells me. Avenue U, Neck Road, then finally Avenue Y. And then after that, you know, Sheep's Head Bay. Brighton Beach, he says, and I refused to believe I was going the wrong way. And he says, even though I was looking out the window, and it didn't look like we were coming closer to the city, if anything, it looked like we were getting farther away from the city. He says, until we hit the ocean, I was in denial. He says, finally, the train hits the last stop. They hit the boardwalk, Coney Island, Brighton Beach. 
And the guy on the train, the conductor, gets on the thing and says, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be the last stop. He says, until that point, he refused to believe that he was wrong. And this is the way people are. He says, but I was on the right track. Yeah, you were on the right track, but you were on the wrong train. You're going the wrong direction. He says, I had to eat my pride. He says, but when does the truth come out? At the end. It's always on the last stop that people find out if they were on the right route or not. Therefore, on the Sofet Tevot, Torah tells you the emet is always going to come out. The only guarantee that we're not just on the right track, but on the right train, that we're going the right direction, is only with a Torah lifestyle. And this was such a powerful message. Wow. I remember years ago hearing, and I'm not going to tell over the whole story. But years ago, we've told over this story in the past, in the uh, time of Yeritish Abav. I'm not going to say the whole story. But just for the point. And let's remember, in the uh, early 1930s, there was a Jewish professor was one of the most prestigious professors in Germany at that time. And this professor was well known through the whole country. He was so respected. This professor decided that he's going to marry a German woman. Religion to him already, he felt he surpassed. He felt it was old stuff. It was tradition, but it wasn't new. It wasn't up with the times. He stood for education. He stood for the new age. He went out, he married a German woman. And such a chutzpah. He went and he took the wedding invitation and he hung it up inside the old shul in Germany, in Berlin, that he used to pray in. It was a big invitation, inviting the whole congregation to the marriage between him and this Fro Anna, this woman, this Goya, that he was going to marry. The people were so incest, they were so angry. It's one thing to not have the, the, the decency and not have the bouchard, to be embarrassed, but to hang it up in public and to invite everybody like that. It's terrible, disgusting. But this man couldn't care. He felt he knew better. And all the rabbis were old timers. And the whole religion was outdated. And he is a professor in college. And he stands for new age, new education. And he married this woman. And he had children with this woman. A few years later, one night at the dining room table of his home, his wife and his children had a clandestine secret meeting. And what was the meeting about on the table? The meeting was, what are we going to do with daddy? He's a Jew. Do we go and tell the Gestapo about daddy, being that he's a Jew? And after going back and forth, at the end of their meeting, they all agreed in unison as their job and loyalty to Mother Germany, they must do the right thing. And that evening, the mother and her kids went out to the Gestapo office in late 1930s and said with tears, we must confess that our husband, our father, he's a Jew. And we've been hiding him. And we have terrible regrets. But we have to cleanse Germany from the Jews. We have to tell you our secret. That night, at 2 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the night, the Gestapo was known to come in the middle of the night to pull people out of bed in their pajamas just to belittle them. That night, the middle of the night, the Gestapo bangs down the front door of this Jewish professor's home. And he comes running in, and they run into his bedroom, and they pull him out of bed in his pajamas, and they arrest him. And what, 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 what was his crime? His crime was that he is a traitor. He's a Jew. And as they ran into the bedroom, and they pulled the professor out of bed, and they arrested him for being a Jew, his children came running in. His wife was all screaming, and they were pointing at the father, screaming, There he is! There's the Jew! Get him! 
Arrest him? Can you imagine that? And this professor, this Jew, who gave his life for Germany, gave his life for education, he gave his life for the woman he married against his roots. And the children he's raised as little Goyim. And everything he stood for in that split second. Basov, he realized he was living a lie. And how they all turned on him in the matter of a moment. Says the Torah, Bereshit bara Elohim. Hashem's stamp is emet. Right at the beginning, at the get-go of the start of Torah, I need to tell you, says Bore Olam, that this is the only guarantee to a life of emet. If you are to deviate from this Torah, even if you think you're smarter, even if you think you're updated, even if you think you're modern and educated, and you could have every piece of paper on the wall framed in wonderful diplomas, at the end of the day, Torah is a life of truth, nothing else. There's no other guarantees other a ben Torah and a life of Torah. I'm not referring to sitting down and learning all day. I'm saying that a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, wonderful Jews, but they have a seder of Torah at night. They start their day off with the learning of Torah in the morning. Life needs to be connected to Torah, and that's the guarantee of a life of truth. And that truth, in the end, always prevails. And no matter how far we deviate, and no matter sometimes how far we end up falling off the path, it brings us back. It brings us back like nothing else in the world. And that's why the Sofet Tevot is emet. Asof, the truth will always bring you home. And I believe strongly that that was one of the great driving points of happiness over Simhat Torah. The dancing, the singing, and the happiness was a victory of truth. We got the Torah. We have a guarantee that we're living with Hashem, that we're living with truth. Our lives are going to be fulfilling. Our lives are going to be with purpose. Our lives are going to live a life of meaning because we have the Torah in our life. And the dancing and the singing is, thank you, we are so lucky to be the ones that you chose to give the book of truth, to give the life of truth, to give the laws of truth. The Torah is not there to rain on anyone's parade. The Torah and its rules are not there to make things difficult for people. The Torah and its rules are there to protect us so that we can stick to the truth, so that we can live a life of truth, so we can look back at the end of life and see that we had so much meaning, we had so much fulfillment, we could justify a life, we can have what to show for our lives. That's a life of Torah. Nothing else brings that guarantee other than a life of Torah. And that's the dancing and that's the smahot. I'd like to say over, a very powerful, a very moving story that I heard many years ago from Rabbi Goldwasser, Shalita, Shem should give him strength. He tells over an incredible story. I hope I'll do justice to the story itself. He says over that many years ago, right after the Iron Curtain fell and communist Russia was no longer the Russia that barred and outlawed religion, Many wonderful rabbis from the United States saw an opportunity to go out to Russia and to start educating the Russian Jews, re-bringing re back to them, re what you would say, bringing back to them their roots, starting to teach them about Judaism all over again. Now the opportunity, the door was open. Rabbi Goldwasser was one of those great rabbis that made it out to Russia and started teaching them Shabbat, started teaching them about Judaism, start opening slowly but surely shuls, yeshivot, mikveh, I mean, the basis of Judaism. 
He tells over an incredible story. He says that uh, it came at the end of Sukkot, Simchat Torah. And there by Simchat Torah, this was a holiday that the Russian Jews knew very well about and they enjoyed like everybody. And they took out the Sefer Torah and people were dancing and they were getting into it. Rabbi Goldwasser says, you know, as a real American rabbi and doing outreach, he says he was the one that was walking around the room, bringing people back into the circle, getting them to dance, getting them to get into it, singing with them. And he sees in the back of the shul that there was a guy, a big, burly Russian Jewish guy. He had a, a mustache, like a, like a Raleigh Fingers type of a mustache, like a big, burly handlebars type of a mustache. And the guy was sitting there, this guy was huge. He was like a Russian bear. And he was sitting there in the back and he was leaning on a bottle of vodka and he just was watching without any expression. And people were dancing and singing. He sat in the back, he didn't move. So Rabbi Goldwasser felt, you know, you know, the American style of outreach, I'm gonna run up to him and I'm gonna say, hey, come on in, let's dance. He's gonna put his arm around him and he said, come on, you can do it. As he runs up to this big Russian guy sitting in the back and he walks up to the guy and says, hey, all the people from the shore run up to him and say, Rabbi, 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 shh, shh, shh. Leave him alone. Just, just let him sit. Let him be. Rabbi Goldwasser says, why? Why? He's a Jew like everybody else. Let him come dance. No, 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 Rabbi, Rabbi, we understand, but just, just please, just let him be. You, you don't want to talk to him. You don't want to mess with him. You don't want to say anything. Just let him be. Rabbi Goldwasser says, oh, that's not right. I mean, come on, let's get Rabbi, just listen to us on this one. Just step away from him. Don't talk to him. Don't look at him. Don't bother him. Don't feed him. Just let him be. Okay, Rabbi Goldwasser, he walks away. He continues the hakafot, and every hakafa, the people got into it. They were dancing in the Torah, and it was unbelievable. The hakafot in Russia. I mean, who would ever imagine that one day in the open you could practice Judaism like that with dancing and singing and rejoicing? And one after hakafa after the next, till finally it came down to the last hakafa. And Rabbi Goldwasser started teaching them the famous song of the last hakafa of Sushaarim, and they're starting to sing it, and they're learning it, and they're getting into it. And Rabbi Goldwasser, his eyes is closed, and he's dancing in front of the Torah that's sitting there on the bima, and he's dancing, and they're clapping. And then suddenly, all the dancing stops. Rabbi Goldwasser opens his eyes and looks around. Nobody there. Where did everybody go? He looks around and he sees that everybody ran to different sides of the shul and they're standing in the corners of the shul. Rabbi Goldwasser says, what's happening? We're in Milva Hakafa. Why did everybody stop dancing? And then he feels behind them. There's this big, ominous, lurking shadow of a mountain of a man. And he turns around. And he sees this guy, the Russian bear, got up and he's standing behind him holding the bottle of vodka. And the guy looks at Rabbi Goldwasser and he motions to him, move aside, sit down. Rabbi Goldwasser says to himself, listen, the guy's big, but you can't stop Hakafot. I, we're in the Hakafot. We're dancing in front of the Torah. You can't stop the hakafot because you decide. So Rabbi Goldwasser said, I looked this guy straight in the kneecap and I was about to tell him a thing or two. I don't care how big, and Rabbi Goldwasser's a tall guy, I don't care how big this guy is. And he says, I was about to say something and suddenly the people at the shul run up. Rabbi, 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 don't say a word to him. Rabbi Goldwasser says, what do you mean? We're in the hakafot. What? He decides everyone stops dancing. No, we're in front of the Sefer Torah. This is terrible. Rabbi, Rabbi, you don't understand. Just, just, just leave him alone. Please, Rabbi, just walk to the side. Just step to the side. 
He says, absolutely not. I'm not going to stop dancing hakafot on Simchat Torah. They said, Rabbi, please, you don't know what you're dealing with. Just step to the side. Okay. Rabbi Goldwasser takes a step to the side. And suddenly, he could not believe his eyes. This big mountain of a man, this Russian bear, a Jewish guy holding that bottle of vodka, he starts dancing. But such a dancing that the whole room started vibrating with him up and down, back and forth. And the more he started dancing, the more the people started clapping. And they were ushering him on. And he danced and they clapped. And suddenly the people see that he closes his eyes, this guy. He's dancing in front of the Torah. He's swinging the bottle of vodka. And the place is literally going crazy. And this guy is dancing his heart out. Goldwasser says, I couldn't believe this. And then, this Russian big bear, he opens his top button of his shirt. And Rabbi Goldwasser says, oh no, he's not going to do what I think he's going to do. And when he opens that button, the crowd is cheering him on and screaming and yelling. And then he opens the next button. And Rabbi Goldwasser says, oh, Shema Israel, no, Yvette. what a bizarre, don't do it, not in front of the Torah. And he opens the next button, and then suddenly he does the unthinkable. Dancing in front of the Torah, he pulls off his shirt, and he starts swinging his shirt, and he throws it into the crowd, and the place was going crazy. Rabbi Goldwasser says, that's it. He says, I was about to jump in there and tackle his kneecaps. <laughs> this is a bizayon. The guy's standing there, bare-chested as a Russian bear, dancing in front of a Torah. He says, I'm not going to let this happen. And then he did the craziest thing. As this big guy is dancing, bare-chested, he turns around and he starts pointing to his back in front of the Torah. And Rabbi Golas says, what in the world is this guy doing now? And the more he did it, the more the place cheered and screamed. And Rabbi Golas goes around the Torah and he says, I looked at this guy's back. His back was completely mutilated. It was ripped to shreds. There were whip marks and there were hundreds of stitches all over his back. There wasn't two inches of skin that wasn't ripped to shreds. He says his back was such a sight. He says, I couldn't even look. And he was dancing, pointing to his back, showing the Torah his back as he danced. And the crowd went crazy. And one guy walks up quietly, Rabbi Goldwasser, and he says, Rabbi, let me explain it to you. He says, many years ago, this guy... You know, in those days, in those days it was still communist Russia. The KGB was notorious for finding Jews, doing things in the hidden. And they outlawed Brit Milah, and they outlawed anything to do with Judaism. And this guy, this big guy, he had a baby boy. And he decided that no matter what, he's going to have the Brit Milah in his basement. And the night before, he went around to the whole city and he invited everybody tomorrow morning by sunrise. We're going to pray in my basement. I got a rabbi. I got the mohel. They're going to do a brit milah. People said, you're crazy. They're going to kill you. He says, I don't care. I'm not scared. Let them come. I'll fight them. Okay. The next morning, sunrise, the whole city packed down to his basement. They prayed. And after tefillah, the rabbi, the mohel, they made the Brit Milah, and it was such a happiness that it warmed up the Judaism of the entire town. He says, people got such a push and inspiration to go on being Jewish against all odds. He says, you don't know, Rabbi, what that Brit Milah did for the whole town. And this guy was so happy, L'chaim. He had a Brit Milah on his son. Yeah, he says, when we left his home, the Goyim saw Something was going on. The Jews that day in town were way too happy. Way too festive. 
And because of that, word got back to the KGB. And the Russian secret police showed up, and little by little, they put pieces together, and they found out the truth. They found out that this guy made a brit meal on his basement. That night, they came to his house, the KGB, and they pulled him out, and they brought him to the middle of the town, and they brought out all the Jews to watch. And they announced on a microphone, we're going to make an example out of this guy. And he stood there in handcuffs in the middle of the street. And he says, you know what they did to him? They opened up his first button. And then slowly they opened the second button and we all watched. And then the next button. And then they pulled off his shirt and they swung it around and they threw it. And then they took out the whips and they started beating him and whipping his back, and he was yelling and screaming from pain. And he went right down on his face, and they continued to whip him, and they continued to beat him until his back was a complete bloodbath. And he laid there in his own blood. And then they announced that anybody that even tries to help him will get the same. And we all went back to our homes. In the middle of the night, he was able, just with his elbows, to pull himself out of the street and into one of the homes. And someone there was able to help him, and they stitched up his back. And he says, take a look. Ever since then, he wasn't the same. Mentally, he wasn't 100%. But every year, Simchat Torah, every year, on the last Hakafa, he would get up. And he would dance in front of Torah. And he would take off his shirt like they did to him. And he would dance in front of the Torah. And he would point to his back and show, look. Look what I did for you, Torah. Look what I did for your mitzvot. Look what I did for your halachot. I'm ready to dance. I, we gave, we gave so much to the Torah. And the Torah and its emet continues to give back to us each and every year. And the blessings that we have is the blessings of the Torah in our life. The blessings we see in our kids are the kids that are in Torah Yeshivot. The blessings of the homes and of the families are families that are connected to Torah and that support Torah. This is the cry on the get-go of Torah Bereshit Bara Elohim. Sofetevot Emet. This is the emet. This is what we give our lives for. This is what we're going to bring up our children to be. This is the path and the guarantee. We should be zocheh, to build homes of Torah, to have a life this year that's connected to Torah so that we may continue to live a life of emet. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. This is Rabbi Dovi Ben Shushan from Congregation Magen Abraham. Please tune in every week on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Have a great week. Shabbat Tov.